When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must, we, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will have come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he had said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And so good morning. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here uh, at Redeemer, and we, uh, we begin our Advent uh, celebration this week, so welcome to Advent. Advent is more than just preparation for Easter. Fleming Rutledge has written a book uh, that's really great, and she says this, she says, Christians live in Advent all the time. So Advent is a month, four Sundays anyway, to practice how to be a Christian the rest of the year. It's a time of waiting. Uh, and sometimes it can be excruciating to wait for Christmas to get here, especially if you're a student or if you want school to be over or if you're a child and can't wait to see the presents underneath the tree. But that waiting that we're to enter into as much as possible during these weeks mirrors the century of waiting the Old Testament saints had to endure before the coming of Messiah Jesus in the Incarnation, which we celebrate at Christmas. But don't forget that we are awaiting people too. We are waiting for him to come again. And so our lives carry a certain not yet quality to them that can be hard to live with. Jesus is coming again, and then all will be as it should be, but not yet. And Advent is a time to be trained to live in that not yet, which is crucial if you're going to live a life of faith and not sight. Uh, this not yet living is full of longing and incompleteness, which is what we're going to talk about over these weeks. To use the language of our text in verse 37, it, food that perishes, uh, which is our experience of life in many cases. So the good news of Christmas is that the glory of the kingdom that is yet to come, where faith becomes sight, as we read, where we hunger no more, where God will wipe away every tear from our eyes, 
that this is already available and accessible to all who believe. I mean, even though it's not yet, there is an already element to this as well. And I'm the turkey cutter in our, thanks, in our family at Thanksgiving for some reason. It just kind of fell to me, I guess. Which means that I don't eat much turkey at dinner because, of course, you kind of eat it as you go, right? And I've noticed, uh, you know, a small piece here, a small piece there, and, but then you're full by the time you finish carving the turkey. And then I've noticed that the other men and the dogs, because I'm a sucker for the animals, gather around to pick while I cut, and we all fill ourselves up on turkey before we even sit down to eat. Now that, believe it or not, uh, that is, that's the kingdom. We get bits and pieces and crumbs before the real feast. And so the trick, the trick is living in, the, is learning how to live in the tension between the already, uh, that, is, that is ours, that we can experience, that we can taste and touch and feel and whatnot, and the not yet, that's Advent. That's what these weeks are about. We're all living in what Fleming Rutledge calls the time in between. The time between. In the span of the centuries between the first coming of Christ at Christmas and his second coming. So, you know, it begs questions. Why did he come in the first place? What will it be like when he comes again? And what's at stake, really, for, the, for right now in this moment? Uh, there's a way to find answers to these questions. And there's actually a way to find answers from Jesus himself, which is perhaps the best way, because John's Gospel records a series of I Am statements. You see the title of this series is The Coming of I Am. Uh, there, are the, there are a number of seven, actually, I Am statements in John's Gospel. They're Jesus' personal self-disclosure of how he understood his earthly mission. And so each week during Advent, for the four weeks, can you believe four Sundays until Christmas? Kids, can I get an amen? I mean... Like 24 days, adults. Thanksgiving came late. Christmas is going to be here quick. We have four weeks. And during those four weeks, we're going to take one of these I am statements each week and use it to reflect on our own life and location. Because so much of the Christian life is knowing the place and the time in which you live. So this morning in John 6, as we just read, Jesus says, I am the bread of life, verse 48. I am the bread of life. Now, Jesus is here claiming to be God. This is very clear. We should say it at the outset. Christians believe that the baby born in Bethlehem is none other than God himself. Amen? There is no way around this. We hear from Jesus himself in John chapter 8. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And that I am being the Old Testament name of God describing his eternality and self-existence. And so when Jesus says, I am or I am the bread of life, or I am the light of the world, he is claiming to be the I am. We have that I am statement there, but then there's a metaphor attached to it to carry a specific spiritual lesson for us as we understand and try to apply the implications of his divinity. And so here in John 6, we see Jesus says, and this is our first I am statement for this Advent season, I am the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life, or the bread of heaven, or the bread of God, all of those are used in the text. They all mean the same thing, but what do they mean for us? That's what we want to ask and try to answer this morning. And, and to do that, we're just gonna we're gonna use kind of the narrative flow of the story of Christianity and just and just take this statement of Jesus apart, given the different acts in the, the story of Christianity. The acts would be the first act one is creation. We believe in a world that's been created. Act two is fall. We believe in a world that's gone wrong because of sin. It's fallen by nature. And act three, we believe in a world that's being redeemed by Jesus himself through the great work that he came to accomplish on his first visit to the earth. And so what, what does 
I am the bread of life, mean in light of the creation and the fall and the redemption, or our design and our sinful response to the need that we experience because of our design and then how Jesus is ultimately the answer. So let's just look at this first, beginning with just the idea of creation. Jesus is bread, we're told here. And what does that teach us about how we are made, about the very design, not only in, our, in us, but in, in the world that we live in? And, and the context for the teaching here in John 6 is the famous feeding of the 5,000. So if you go all the way back to verse 1 of the chapter, you'll see that that's what happens very, at the very beginning of John 6. John 6, by the way, if you're a Bible trivia person, is the longest chapter in the entire Bible. Uh, there's, it, there's a lot going on here, but it begins with the, the famous feeding of the 5,000. It is the only of Jesus' miracles that's mentioned in all four of the Gospels, which shows its unique significance. So there's a large crowd that was following him, 5,000 men were told, so probably 10,000 or more total. They're in a desolate place, kind of out in the wilderness. And as you might imagine, the crowd at the end of the day got hungry and Jesus felt compelled to take care of their physical needs. And so he took five barley loaves and two fish, verse nine, from one of the boys that was in the crowd. And with those tiny little morsels, he fed the entire crowd. Everyone ate, we're told, all they wanted. It was like Thanksgiving dinner. Everybody was stuffed at the end, and they gathered up all the leftovers, and there were 12 baskets full of food remaining after everybody had had all they wanted. I mean, it's truly an amazing thing, right? And John says in verse 14 that the miracle was a sign. Now, this is something unique for John. Uh, in John's gospel, Jesus' miracles are not just naked displays of his power. There is always a spiritual lesson. The significance of the miracle was never just the feat itself. It was always whatever greater reality that it was meant to point toward that could only be perceived by eyes of faith. So it was a sign. The miracle was a parable is another way of saying it for John, always. And so what was the spiritual lesson that the feeding of the 5,000 was, po was pointing to? Well, to get to that answer, you have to go a little deeper, go one step further into the text and see that the connection here is meant to be made between the miracle that Jesus does and a similar miracle in the Old Testament where God, again, miraculously provided for his people bread when they were hungry in the wilderness. I'm talking about the manna in Exodus chapter 16 where God's people come out of Egypt they again, there was this large crowd that was almost, you know, couldn't be counted and no, no way that they could be fed except by divine provision. Uh, they're hungry, and in response to their hunger, the Lord rains bread down from heaven to feed them. The text makes this connection in verse 31. The crowd says, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, connecting what Jesus had done with the manna story. So, we have to ask then, before we get to the meat of this text, what was the lesson of the manna? Well, in the wilderness, God was forming Israel as a people, as a redeemed community. And lesson number one, the, the wilderness was the school God sent them to, to teach them how to be uh, the people he wanted them to be as they came in to possess the promised land. And lesson number one on the first day of school was dependence. If you remember, the manna came every day, but they were commanded to only gather what they needed for that day and trust God to send the manna again the next day. And when they tried to hoard and gather more than they needed, it spoiled and it became rotten and bad. And so it was a forced habit, a, a, a school lesson to teach them how to depend upon God day after day after day. It was daily bread given to them. And the lesson for us is that we were made in the very way we've been created we were made to depend upon God for everything and to trust him daily. The lesson of the wilderness 
both in the Exodus story and also here as these people are gathered in the wilderness in John 6. The lesson that they were meant to learn, that we're meant to learn as we read about this, was to learn that we go to God not for the things we need, but we go to him as the thing we need. There's a subtle difference there, but it's really important. The lesson is to learn to go to God not just for the things we need, but to go to him as if he is the very thing we need. If you have bread, but you don't have him, it will never be enough. But if you have him, even without bread, you'll have all you need. That's the lesson of the wilderness. And later, reflecting on the man, Moses said it this way to Israel. He said, this is Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, God fed you with manna, which you did not know, that he might make you to know, that he might teach you, the NIV says, because again, they're in school, that he might teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now, if we were to apply these lessons for us, there are a number of things we could say. The first lesson I think we learned from this text is the way your body hungers for bread, your soul hungers for God. And I wonder, it does every person in the room, in your createdness, this is not a Christian thing, it's not a religious thing, this is, this is a, a, a human thing, that, that the way your body has been designed to hunger and be satisfied by bread, your soul was designed to hunger for and be satisfied only by God alone. God is like food. C.S. Lewis said he's the fuel we run on. In other words, the, in the way you fill your stomach with food, you have to fill your soul with God. Everybody has a spiritual hunger. Underneath physical hunger, there's spiritual hunger. Underneath every desire in life, there's a spiritual desire. There's an emptiness in us, like an empty stomach, an emptiness that demands to be filled and can only be filled by God himself. And so we don't go to God to get the things we need to satisfy our deepest desires. We go to him as the thing we need and the only thing that can truly satisfy. That's the first lesson. But the second lesson is to recognize then in the hunger that we all feel something very good. I mean, we experience what I'm describing here, and I think what the metaphor describes for us that Jesus uses. Uh, we, describe, we, we experience it as, as many things, as loneliness, as discontentment, and so forth. And when we do, we think automatically, well, something's wrong. You know, right? I, I, we must need a new job or a new house or a new marriage because what I have is not, you know, what I need. But the hunger is there, not because there's some change that we need to make. It wouldn't matter how well you know, you manage your circumstances, it would be there no matter what, because the hunger, the hunger that you're feeling is not because there's some new thing that you need. The hunger is homesickness for God himself. So it's not that there's something wrong. It is that if you're a human being in the room, which I think all of us qualify, then in the very way that you were made, there are desires that you will experience in your life that cannot be fulfilled by anything in this world. Because we were made for another world. G.K. Chesterton said, every man who walks into a brothel is looking for God. But it's not just sex. It's almost every part of our life where we see this, this desire and this hunger and this longing popping up. I mean, just consider, consider this ad from Amazon. Maybe you've caught this on, on TV recently.
free one-day delivery on millions of items with Prime. Now that is brilliant. I mean, whoever came up with that deserves a raise because they understand, they understand humanity better than most of us do. Because what's happening in that ad, you have this haunting music in the background that is meant, that was written to evoke this deep sense of longing or even loss that we're talking about. And then comes the promise. Did you catch the promise at the end? What did it say at the very end? Peace delivered. Like, in other words, yeah, right? I mean, the preacher's wrong. You can have peace. You can have all of the joy and all of the satisfaction uh, that, that you need in life. It really can happen. You can find it. It can be yours. And what is it that you need that can finally bring the peace we're all looking for in our lives? What is it that you're missing that you need? Free one-day shipping. <laughs> and that's, that's all you need. I mean, Amazon's messaging is, is clear. You can fill even deep spiritual needs with physical bread. You can shop your way to satisfaction in life as long as you can get the stuff you need fast enough. I mean, it's powerful. But even in that, we should not look at that and say, it's right, you, so you can approach Black, Black Friday in, uh, in two ways. You can, you, can, you can approach Black Friday wrongly in two ways. The first is like buying in, buying in. The second is to self-righteously judge people who are just out having fun. <laughs> They're both ways of just dealing with the inner sense of emptiness and need that you have, right? But it's not something bad. It's something good. It's something about, that's a part of the fabric that we were made uh, to experience and to live with. But there's a third lesson. And the third lesson is just as you have to train your physical hunger, you have to train your spiritual hunger. You know what I mean by that, right? You've trained your physical hunger. I mean, you know, I, I am of the opinion that people who say they like vegetables are liars. <laughs> but you need to eat the vegetables because they're good for you. And, and I've also been told, though I've not experienced it with broccoli yet, that, that if you eat it enough times, that eventually you'll come to like it. I, I still think they're lying to me in saying that. But but I'm in. I'm in to try, right? And in the same way, when I, what I mean by you have to train your spiritual hunger, you have to recognize what your soul is really after when you feel the hunger. And you have to name it. And so if when you feel the hunger, however it comes, if it's, right, if we're a starving people, if I've said, and when you feel it, whether it's loneliness or discontentment or just boredom, if what you do then is you rush around trying to change your circumstances, you'll never be happy because if something uh, because it's something that no change in circumstance can fix. Instead, you have to learn to say, okay, what I'm really longing for here is this. How can I not get a different set of circumstances, but how can I, right where I am, how can I be more deeply connected to God who is the true source of comfort for me in this situation? That's almost always the way forward is to recognize the reality of the hungers that are at work in your life. But this, secondly then, but what, okay, so if that's true, if that's, if that's the way that we've been created, well then what about, what about the fall as well? Or how do we sinfully grasp at only what God can give? What happens if we, in, in feeling all of these things, if we do not go to God as the only thing that can satisfy our deepest heart's desires? Well, the verse I quoted from Deuteronomy 8 earlier, man does not live by bread alone. Maybe you remember that Jesus quoted the same verse in his temptation by Satan in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, which we just read as a church together this past week. He was hungry, but he was hungry in a way that not a single one of us in the room has ever been hungry before, after 40 days with no food. 
I'm desperate long before that, okay? So imagine his desperation. Satan comes to him in, in this, literally he's dying. He's dying from lack of food. And Satan comes to him and says, if you're the son of God, then just command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, could Jesus have done that? Yes, of course. But he would not. Why? Well, because he's there to be obedient to God in the way that we have all been disobedient. His mission was to pass the test that we had failed. We are saved through his obedient life. And, and the essence of sin we learn there is trying to provide for yourselves apart from God. It's trying to provide for yourself apart from God. This, that was the temptation. It was a temptation that Satan offered to him. And, and he wanted him to take care of himself, to not rely upon God, but just, just make his life work on his own. But Jesus refused to make his own bread. He refused to use his power and his authority to act independently of God. He instead trusted God to provide for him, even in his deepest desperate hunger, because he knew, better than we do, he knew that there was something he needed more than bread in that moment. He knew uh, that he was dying, but there, was a, but there was a worse death. He knew he could have bread, but he would have to have it without the Father. Or he could have the Father without bread, and he chose the Father. Because that is the choice. But what about you? Do you ever let your hunger drive you to make bread for yourself by, and I wish we had time to, to, man, we just don't have the time to really dive into this, but do you ever let your hunger drive you to make bread by taking control of your life, by using your wealth and your connections or just your talent to make things happen, to bring things about instead of depending upon God? Do you ever do, you ever do that? Do you ever, instead of depending upon him, do you ever just do for yourself? you got to see that impulse in you. It's there in verse 28 when the crowds come and ask, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Because this is the way we wrongly approach all of life, not just matters of our salvation, not, not just when it comes to how are we right with God, but how are we going to live our life from day to day? All, we, we live as if all of our doing is what gets things done. There's a deep unbelief in the question they ask there. And it assumes that when it comes to being saved, to being right with God, that God responds to our doing, which translates over into if you believe that to be the way you become right with God, then it's going to be the way you live all of your life as well. When it's all wrong, God doesn't respond to our doing. We respond to his all the time. That's the way this works. Because you see, the problem is when we go about trying to make bread for ourselves, the bread that we end up making is called in the text food that perishes. Verse 27, again, alluding back to the manna that the people ate and then they stored up, trying to, trying to take care of their tomorrow, trying to secure for themselves their tomorrow. And their work of securing for themselves the tomorrow that they knew that they needed was the very thing that became rotten with worms before their eyes. So Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. In other words, if you don't like your life, and if you make, you, may, you know, you go about making big changes because you think, you know, I just need something different, it might work for a little while, but eventually what happens is, is the newness wears off. The new house wears off, the new marriage wears off, the new, you know, clothes wear off, the new whatever wears off, and you'll be right back where you were before, but just deeper into the slavery to your own desires because 
everything that you try to do, all the food and the bread you try to make for yourself is ultimately food that spoils. It's Turkish delight. Do you remember that? In the Chronicles of Narnia? That enchanted food that Edmund eats that doesn't fill him up because it's candy, by the way. I mean, my, and my, favorite, my favorite thing is when any of, you, any of your kids ever come and say, I'm hungry, well, get something to eat. Can I have a lollipop? Yeah, I don't think that's going to do it. If you're hungry, your body needs food, not candy. This is candy, but, but there's no nutritional value in what he's eating here. It's just his favorite thing to eat. But the problem is, the enchantment is that the more you eat, the more you crave. All it does is just increase your hunger. And this is the bread we make for ourselves. But what we're told in the text is that there is food that endures. There's food that can get you through today and tomorrow and the day after and the day after, and it is the bread that God gives. And I will come back to that in just a minute. But here's a lesson, too, I think, that's important for us before we move on to the last thing. (laughs) I don't want to shame anybody, but this is kind of a fun thing. We did it in the first service, so if you want to participate, that's great. Church could be participatory, but show of hands, how many of you, after eating two days' worth of calories at lunch on Thursday, just hours later, ate dinner, too? Come on, don't be ashamed. Okay. Now listen, that's a parable for life. That's a parable for all of life. We, we never experience complete fullness. We experience every joy as a longing, as desire, not satisfaction. I mean, you gotta, so every joy, every, every best moment in life comes to you and your experience of it is not as satisfaction but as a desire, as something that there's just some incompleteness to everything that we have. And that's important to know. All of our best havings or wantings is the way C.S. Lewis put it. In other words, the very best things are not the thing itself. They point us to something else, to something more. So the very best moment, the very best meals, the very best relationships, the very best accomplishments, they all leave us wanting, not for more of the same thing, but for the thing itself. And what is the thing itself? John 6, 48, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of zoe. There are two Greek words that can be translated life, bios and zoe. Bios is, of course, biology. It's inhaling and exhaling and making it through the day. But zoe is life beyond just biology. It's life that is really life, life that's abundant life. I and mean, we all know people who are alive but not alive. Can I get an amen? I mean, you know what I'm talking about there? The church, Father Irenaeus, is credited with saying, the glory of God is man fully alive. Life fully alive. Well, what is zoe life then? Well, we've already said it, but it is depending upon God for everything. What Jesus put on display in his temptation, that's so a life. Not making bread for yourself that doesn't satisfy anyway, but living a given life, joyfully receiving all that comes to you as a gift from the Father in heaven. See, abundant life isn't an abundance of material possessions. It can be, but most, most times it's not. Not necessarily. It is an abundance of joy and peace and love and hope, all the things that Amazon promises, no matter what happens, because you know you're safe, you're loved, you're going to be provided for. That's, that's why we make bread for ourselves is because we feel these things. We don't feel safe. We don't know that we're loved. We don't know that we can be sure of tomorrow. And so we go about trying to secure these things for ourselves. But there's a way of knowing. There's a way of knowing you're safe and knowing you're loved and knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt 
that you're provided for. Well, how, how is that? How do you know that? Well, because of Christmas. Because God came all the way in the relationship. He didn't meet you halfway. He came all the way from heaven to earth. And then what we're told here is that even in coming to earth, he pushed through all of our unbelief. I mean, if you're a Christian this morning, it's because at some point you've responded to the call of faith with faith and repentance. But Jesus is clear that that response that you might have done is actually a work that God has to accomplish in you. Look at verse 44. He says clearly, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So Jesus came all the way. He didn't come part of the way and then you came part of the way. He came all the way. He did all the work. It's 100% on his shoulders. He came making bread and feeding people, just like in the miracle here in John 6. I mean, the miracle is a parable. It was a sign, as we've said. It pointed to the truth of God's generosity and his care for all of us in sending Jesus on a rescue mission to raise us up. Notice how many times that word is used there in verse 39, 40, but all throughout the chapter it means uh, that there's a deadness to us, that there's something that's not alive in us, but, but Jesus comes and the bread he gives us can give us life. Not, again, not bios life, zoe life. He can raise us up, not just on the last day when our physical bodies will be raised, but raised to walk in newness of life, as Paul promises in Romans chapter 6. Now, every day as we feed on him by faith, day by day. I mean, Jesus is not a guide to life. He is life. And when you come to him, you don't then have to say, now, okay, here I am. What do I have to do to do the works of God? Verse 28. It's already done. He's done the works of God for you. That's the Christian gospel. And so you don't have to feed yourself. You don't have to make bread. You don't have to slave away for food that perishes. He will feed you. And here's how I know. Because the only way for him to give us life was for him to die. I mean, the metaphor of bread carries that lesson as well, doesn't it? I am the bread of life means literally my brokenness for your life. Look at what he says down in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm being torn apart from you. I'm going to the cross to die for you so that you can live. The only way for you to live is for me to be ripped into little pieces and that is the work that can give you life. Jesus has done all you need to do before God so that if you believe, if you accept him, then God accepts you. And that is the life that Jesus gives. That is the Zoe life, to know God so intimately and to be so confident in his care for you and to be so rooted in his love for you in Christ that you don't have to go around trying to make bread for yourself. That is the bread that if you eat it, you won't be hungry ever again. In other words, verse 35, if you have that, if you have that, if you have that abiding sense of God's presence and care and love and confidence in his working and his provision for you, if you have that, you won't need anything else to feel satisfied. If you don't have it, then nothing's going to ever satisfy you. The, the hunger will never go away. You'll eat and be hungry again five minutes later. But if you get that bread, if you get that bread that Jesus gives, you won't ever need anything else to feel satisfied. St. Augustine, who possibly understood this better than anybody else, famously wrote, Lord, oh Lord, you've made us for yourselves, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. That's just his word for, oh, we're hungry, and the only thing that can fill us up is you. 
And so we see that the way forward is believing. The text clearly teaches this. What must we do to be doing the works of God, verse 28? And then look at verse 29. It's one of my favorite. These two verses are probably some of the most formative in my life over the last 10 years probably of my life. What must we do to be doing the works of God? Because I'm an achiever, if you don't know. I mean, I, that's, that's my question. Yeah, what do I got to do? And you know, in the, in the Gospels, people came to him all the time, Jesus saying, what do we got to do? What do I got to do to inter- inherit eternal life? And verse 29 is his answer. This is the work of God. You want to know what, God, what the work God wants you to do? This is it. Here's the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. Because you see, the problem is not behavior. It's desire. Our lives are going wrong at the level of desire. It's hunger. That hunger, that desire drives behavior. But if you just change behavior and you don't do anything about the desire, you're not making any progress. You're just, the desire is just going to pop up in some other place in your life. We need a change of desire. We need to change at the level of heart hunger. And that's not something that we can do on our own. I mean, I'm, what I'm saying is we need a work of God. We need for God to come all the way. This was Augustine's problem. He could not find enough what he called joy in God to break his sinful habits. If you read the confessions, I mean, he loved, basically, he loved, he loved his sexual ex- exploits more than he did the Lord. And he just couldn't figure out how to break the, the power of sin in that. And then something happened to him. He met God in a powerful way. And here's the way he put it in his confessions. He said, I ceased all at once to will all that I had been wont to will and, and now willed what you will. There was a change, in other words, at the level of desire in his life. I mean, the subterranean parts of his life. Listen, here's how he put it. He said, how sweet did it suddenly seem to me to shrug off those sweet frivolities and how glad I now was to get rid of them for it was you who cast them out for me. You are real and surpassing sweetness. You cast them out and took their place. We need to work like that where where God becomes the surpassing sweetness of our life. Can you imagine losing your sweet sweet tooth? We need to work like that at the level of desire in our lives where we lose all taste for earthly bread, and Jesus can do it. He can do it. The text promises such. He can draw you to himself. He can come all the way. And he can give you this bread so that if you eat it, you will never hunger again. It's what happened with Augustine. And if you come to him in repentance and faith this morning, he can do it in your life too. And here's what it would look like if I could just cast this for us before we come to the table this morning. The, the movement of faith and repentance that we, would, that we would engage in this morning to receive from him this bread by which he would feed us would look something like this. It's the words of, of, a, of a hymn from probably the 12th century attributed to Bernard of Clairvaux. Just listen to these words, and I might read them a couple of times just so you can get a sense of them. But here's here, again, repentance of faith. Here's what it looks like. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, thou fount of life, thou light of men, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfulfilled to thee again. Let me read it again. Jesus... Thou joy of loving hearts, thou fount of life, thou light of men, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfulfilled to thee again. We taste thee, thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. If you come to him like that, 
then you will indeed find him to be the bread that truly satisfies, the bread that can nourish your soul, that can cause you to never hunger or thirst again. And so as we come to this table, come in repentance of faith like that. Can we pray? So, Father, in these moments now that we have to be together, would you do just that work in our lives? Would you come? Because we are the, we are the ones who would say to you, Lord, at the end of all of our doing, at the end of all of our making bread, we're still as hungry as we were at the beginning, and it's because we labor for the bread that perishes, for the food that does not satisfy, that spoils, that brings no lasting joy, peace, hope, happiness into our lives, because it seems easier to do that than to trust your heart to provide for us. How foolish we are in our sin, that we would starve to death when, when, when your arms are stretched out to offer us the very bread we need, the bread of life, your flesh. And so help us to turn in 180 degrees and run to you and to say, Lord, we're hungry. And you alone are the bread that can nourish us. Your heart is the great heart uh, that... that beating at the center of the universe that can cause our hearts to beat with life as well. And so we come to you now in these moments, many, maybe, maybe for the first time in faith, but for many of us, uh, for the, oh man, the hundredth time, I can't even count, to renew repentance of faith, to turn from earthly goods to you alone. Meet us in that place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Think about the first line of that song again. That really is, oh, come all ye thankful. And what is the power of, of gratitude? What's the power of thankfulness? So come all ye thankful, joyful, and what? Triumphant. Are you right? That's a, that's a people whose lives have been changed because they found the source of true joy and life and gratitude. And so listen to the prophet's words from Isaiah 55. Come. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. For why do you spend your money on that which is not bread? And why do you labor on that which does not satisfy? Listen to me. Come to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food is the promise that God makes. If we would come to him in repentance and faith, we would find him to be disposed to us the way this benediction promises, that you would find his face turned towards you. You would find the light of his love shining upon you. You would find his grace ready to meet you uh, in whatever condition you come to him in. That's the promise of these words. And so receive them uh, and, and see in them the one who invites you. Come to me. I am the bread that can truly satisfy you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. God bless.